Welcome to TSX Quarterly, the podcast that brings you publicly available earnings calls from companies listed on the Toronto Stock Exchange in one convenient location. Gone are the days of looking through confusing websites. You'll find the important information right here. Enjoy the call. Good morning, my name is Pam and I will be your conference operator today. At this time, I'd like to welcome everyone to Gibson Energy's Q3 2021 earnings conference call. All lines have been placed on mute to prevent any background noise. After the speaker's remarks, there will be a question and answer session. If you'd like to ask a question during this time, simply press star then the number one on your telephone keypad. If you'd like to withdraw your question, please press star then the number two. Thank you. I would now like to turn the meeting over to Mr. Mark Hitzchest, Vice President, Strategies, Planning, and Investor Relations. Mr. Hitzchest, please go ahead. Thank you, Operator. Good morning, and thank you for joining us on this conference call discussing our third quarter 2021 operational and financial results. On the call this morning from Gibson Energy are Steve Spaulding, President and Chief Executive Officer, and Sean Brown, Chief Financial Officer. Listeners are reminded that today's call refers to non-GAAP measures and forward-looking information. Descriptions and qualifications of such measures and information are set out in our continuous disclosure documents available on CDAR. Now, I'd like to turn the call over to Steve. Thanks, Mark. Good morning, everyone, and thank you for joining us today. I'm pleased to say we delivered another strong quarter, both operationally and financially. As is important, we also made progress on the commercial front, and we continue to advance ESG and sustainability at Gibson. Looking briefly at our financial results, infrastructure-adjusted EBITDA of $104 million was slightly above our expectations and includes a partial contribution from the DRU. On the marketing side, adjusted EBITDA of $16 million was within our outlook range we provided. Our payout of 72% remains near the bottom of our target range of 70 to 80%. Leverage of 3.2 is within our 3 to 3.5 target range. Our balance sheet remains very strong, including being fully funded for all capital. On the operational front, we noted on our last call during the third quarter, we completed the construction of the DRU on schedule within our initial capital range. We continue to be in that startup phase and have line of sight producing fully on-spec product by the end of the year. The DRU has been operating around nameplate capacity for the past few weeks, and we're loading trains of neat bitumen. Our customer is moving this crew to the U.S. Gulf Coast. Importantly, we understand they're seeing really strong pricing on their product. And the refinery customers are seeing meaningful improvement in refinery runs versus dill bit. The diluent continues to see strong pricing advantage versus dill bit at Hardesty. All furthering, DRU competes head-to-head with pipelines. Improving out the cost competitiveness of the DRU really should help us with discussions with additional phases. The DRU requires a complicated set of agreements. Given we're already in November, to the extent we are successful in securing additional customers, 
the timeline would definitely be in 2022. On the tankage front, we're very pleased to announce the sanction of a new tank at Edmonton during the quarter. With this tank, we welcome a new investment-grade energy customer to our Edmonton terminal. We continue to be in discussions with other TMX shippers. We believe Gibson is very well positioned to support shippers on TMX and optimize producer netbacks and meet stream requirements for them. While we generally provide our 2022 capital budget in December, I will reiterate, our target is to deploy between 150 and $200 million per year. While tankage will remain certainly a big portion of this, it will also likely include projects such as incremental DRU phases, expansions under the MSA with Suncor at Edmonton, and potential renewable diesel facility. What hasn't changed is we still expect our capital projects will remain within our five to seven times EBITDA build multiple range, which means we'll continue to generate very attractive risk-adjusted returns for our shareholders. Shifting to ESG, we took another major step a couple of weeks ago with our net zero by 2050 commitment. This is in addition to our pre-existing 2025 and 2030 climate change targets, which include reducing our overall emissions intensity by at least 20% and eliminating our scope two emissions by 2030. The focus for us in setting the net zero target was to have a credible path. Through the applications of existing technologies already in commercial use in North America, we were able to address 90% of our scope one and scope two emissions. We see the potential for further technology and cost improvements to emerge over time. This is important. Our net zero target will not impair our ability to secure growth opportunities. Also, all investments, including energy transition related opportunities, will need to meet our existing internal return hurdles. Given our efforts on ESG and sustainability front, we are very pleased to see the company continues to be recognized, including through the recent MSCI upgrading us to AAA. This is the highest rating in our sector, and we are the only one of three companies globally and the only company in North America to receive this leadership rating. In all, we believe we have positioned Gibson as a great for ESG-minded investors. We have the lowest carbon intensity of our peers. And the steps we have taken consistently move us forward to strong ESG ratings from all the major agencies. Again, we feel we had another strong quarter and remain very well positioned going forward. Our infrastructure business remains solid with our run rate increasing with the startup of the DRU. Continue to sanction new growth within our target five to seven times build multiple, and we remain focused on deploying 150 to 200 million dollars per year in capital. The progress we're making on ESG and sustainability continues to distinguish us from our peers. I will now pass the call over to Sean, who will walk you through our financial results in more detail. Sean. Thanks, Steve. As Steve mentioned, Another solid quarter from a financial perspective, especially for our infrastructure segment. 
Infrastructure adjusted EBITDA of $104 million was slightly ahead of our expectations when taken into account our $100 million run rate in the first half of the year and adjusting it for the payment of the remaining term of the rail loading contract last quarter, as well as the partial contribution from the DRU this quarter. In terms of the drivers of the slate out performance, we saw an increase in third-party revenues at our terminals related to a recent recontracting and the contribution from the DRU was a bit higher than forecast. Marketing adjusted EBITDA of $16 million was within our outlook range. We continued to see opportunities on the crude marketing side, although they were a bit more limited relative to the second quarter and the contribution from Moose Jaw was also slightly lower, driven partly by asphalt margins narrowing through the quarter. However, we are noticing the drilling fluids market strengthening. In terms of our outlook for marketing, we would expect Q4 to come in a bit lower than our Q3 result at between five and $10 million in adjusted EBITDA. This range is reflective of winter asphalt demand at Moose Jaw, as well as our strategy to store product in the winter quarters. Also, given our conservative approach to the marketing business, where we seek to hedge the exposure to the underlying commodity prices with financial instruments, with crude prices continuing to rise, that has led to unrealized losses that will need to be realized in the fourth quarter. It's important to note that we are realizing an offsetting gain on the physical inventory that these financial instruments are hedging. However, the financial impact in the fourth quarter is a bit outsized in part to do to just how much commodity prices have moved, as well as some of the physical gains being realized in either prior or subsequent quarters. And despite the increase in crude prices and differentials, it remains a fairly challenging environment for our crude marketing business. While the marketing segment is able to earn sufficient margin to cover their fixed costs, the current environment and the outlook for the key drivers of profitability within this business in the near future likely requires some measures of events or catalysts to arise for the marketing segment as a whole to reach our 80 to $120 million long-term run rate over a 12-month period. And on that basis, given what we are seeing right now, and absent any events or increased volatility, we'd expect that 2022 could be at or somewhat below the bottom end of our long-term run rate of $80 million for the full year. And that's fine, as we don't rely on marketing to deliver our strategy. Finishing up the discussion of the results, let me quickly work down to distributable cash flow. Interest costs were $13 million, $1 million above the third quarter of 2020, Replacement capital of $8 million was above the $4 million incurred in the third quarter of 2020 as we were catching up on work in the second half of this year following a reduced rate of replacement capital projects over the last number of quarters as the COVID pandemic limited the number of projects we could safely execute. For the full year, we continue to expect replacement capital to be between $25 and $30 million. Taxes of $5 million this quarter were $3 million higher than the third quarter of 2020, largely due to higher infrastructure and marketing earnings this quarter. Also, lease payments were slightly lower in the current quarter relative to the third quarter of last year, as we continue to actively reduce the number of leased rail cars in our marketing segment. And on a trailing 12-month basis, for the first time in a while, both adjusted EBITDA 
and distributable cash flow increased relative to the prior quarter as we posted a stronger quarter in both infrastructure and marketing segments than we are rolling off. As a result, our payout ratio decreased slightly to 72%, which is still at the bottom end of our 70 to 80% target range. Our debt-to-adjusted EBITDA remained flat to the second quarter at 3.2 times, which is in the bottom half of our three to three and a half times target. Also, I would note that on a trailing 12-month basis, given the growth of our infrastructure cash flows and lower marketing contribution, both our adjusted EBITDA and distributable cash flow would be over 90% infrastructure weighted. On an infrastructure-only basis, our leverage would be 3.5 times and our payout ratio would be approximately 67%, where we would seek to be below four times and 100% respectively under our financial governing principles. Clearly, our dividend is firmly underpinned and while always strictly a board decision that is considered once per year at the February meeting, there's certainly room for Gibson to continue its steady, modest dividend growth. And speaking further to our financial position, we continue to maintain a fully funded position for all our capital with ample cushion for additional projects. At the end of the quarter, we are $185 million drawn on our $750 million credit facility with $67 million of cash on the balance sheet. We also have $115 million of unutilized capacity on our $150 million bilateral demand facilities implying about three quarters of a billion dollars in available liquidity relative to a 150 to $200 million per year capital program target. In that sense, very much years of running room. In summary, a solid quarter. Results from the infrastructure segment were slightly ahead of our forecast, though the environment remains challenging for our marketing segment. From a financial perspective, we remain in a very strong financial position, being within both our leverage and payout target ranges, remaining fully funded with ample cushion and with significant available liquidity. And we continue to be of the view that our business offers a strong total return proposition to investors with visibility to continued growth in our high quality infrastructure cash flows and an attractive growing dividend all while maintaining a very strong balance sheet and financial position. At this point, I will turn the call over to the operator to open it up for questions. Thank you. Ladies and gentlemen, we will now begin the question and answer session. Should you have a question, please press star followed by one on your touchtone phone. You will hear a three-tone prompt acknowledging your request and your questions will be polled in the order they are received. Should you wish to decline from the polling process, please press star followed by two and if you're using a speakerphone, please lift your handset before pressing any keys. One moment for your first question. Your first question comes from Rob Hope with Scotiabank. Please go ahead. Uh, morning, everyone. Uh, first question is on, on Moose Jaw as kind of your, your largest emitter source right now. We have additional clarity on the federal level for politics and kind of potential support for renewable diesel projects there. So uh, what are, what's the path forward for Moose Jaw in terms of kind of the decarbonization plan, as well as uh, looking at some uh, renewable fuels there? So thank you for that question, Rob. Um, you know, we have a team and that is looking at all the different opportunities to reduce our, our carbon footprint at Moose Jaw. 
uh, I would say we have four different projects that we're evaluating to reduce that plan. And then if you look at our first release on metrics as far you know, as far as 2025 and 2030, a lot of them were targeted for Moose Jaw because it is our largest emitter. Uh, we have a project underway right now that reduces our, our carbon footprint quite substantially on scope one. Uh, and we continue to look at additional opportunities there. We feel very comfortable we'll be able to meet that with economic projects going forward. Appreciate that. And then just switching over to Edmonton. So we, you know, we had the, the tank secured uh, during the quarter and let's assume Trans Mountain under service, you know, mid 23. When do you need uh, to sign on the dotted line to, to get tankage in service uh, for that start date? And kind of are we seeing conversations accelerate there? You know, we're, we're, we're talking to four different customers there right now. Um, you know, we would hope to we'd hope to sign within really spring because that's when we can start building the rings. Uh, you know, we're we're into winter now, uh, so whether or not it's now or April uh, doesn't make a big big difference because it's really about constructing the rings for those tanks. All right, appreciate the color. I'll jump back in the queue. Thank you. Our bodies come in different shapes and sizes, so doesn't it make sense that our weight loss plans should too? That's the beauty of Noom. They build a personal plan that factors in dietary restrictions, medical issues, and other personal needs so your plan works for you. Noom doesn't restrict or shame when you want to treat yourself. Their flexible program focuses on progress. Instead of perfection, you don't have to give up carbs or anything. And with their daily lessons, you can learn something new about your food choices every day. After just a few days of using the app, I learned how to recognize cues for overeating and how to choose the right foods to feel full. Stay focused on what's important to you with Noom's psychology and biology-based approach. Sign up for your trial today at Noom.com. That's N-O-O-M. Dot com and check out Noom's first ever cookbook, The Noom Kitchen, for a hundred healthy and delicious recipes to promote better living. Available to buy now wherever books are sold. Your next question comes from Robert Kwan with RBC. Please go ahead. Uh, great. Good morning. Um, just on uh, maybe starting on the um, the Edmonton side of things uh, and following on that. Um, what's the visibility on expansion at Edmonton Terminal just around the Suncor agreement? You know, what do you think you can deploy capital-wise, and what's the pace you think of that spend? Uh, good morning, Robert. Um, you know, right now we have the one project under construction. Uh, I would say that's going to be spotty over the next five years, off and on. Um, I can't see any real capital besides that project right now in next year. Uh, but going forward, um, we believe we'll continue to have projects there, especially with this energy transition plan and fuels transition going on. Got it. And just on, on the DRU startup, um, you talked about being on spec by the end of December. What is it? Uh, what do you need to do just to kind of get that product on spec, and is that really the gating factor at this point um, in terms of getting, you know, a second or a third contract to underpin the expansion? And just your commentary that if that comes together, it's kind of a definitely a 2022 event. 
Yeah, thank you for that question, Robert. Um, so, you know, we're making a neat bitumen. So actually, when you look at the boiling points and everything, it is, it is dead on spec. So when it gets down to the U.S. Gulf Coast, um, you know, to a refiner, you know, they, there's no, it's not off spec at all to a U.S. refiner. What it is is an is entrained uh, vapor or little bubbles in, in the crude that increases the flash point temperature. And so with that, um, we were putting in a steam ring and a couple of more trays, uh, and that we hope to have that completed by the end of December. And we're pretty, we're quite confident in this because this is something we do at our Moose Shaw facility today. Got it. And what's the capital um, that's required to get to that? That's that's all part of our agreement with our, our contractor on on kind of guaranteed service. So we don't see any capital coming out of this. Perfect. But it's not um, very substantial at the end of the day. It's not a substantial audit. capital. Okay. And I just finished with a small question, probably for Sean. Um, how should we think about cash actually coming out of the uh, the hard to see partnership? Um, Especially just kind of versus what you're actually booking in the EBITDA. Yeah, no, thanks for that, Rob. It's uh, it's a good question. So um, the the way it works is that we actually book the EBITDA as it's earned, as you might expect, and, and then uh, at the end of each quarter, partnership gets together and then you know formulaically distributes that cash out. So you would have actually seen in this quarter a bit of a lag between uh, the EBITDA that was booked versus the cash. Now we had other offsets to that when you work down to distributable cash flow. Uh, so it probably wasn't as visible, but going forward, given that's just the one quarter lag, you won't actually see that again. But from a here, given the take or pay, you know, every quarter is gonna be quite rateable here. But you know, that is the dynamic you would have seen this quarter where we booked the EBITDA, we didn't actually see the cash in our distributable cash flow. Uh, we'll see that in the subsequent quarter, and, and because we won't see that dynamic again now that it's up and running. Um, yeah. Okay. So, and you expect, so for example, I think you booked a little over four million dollars into EBITDA. Roughly speaking, that will then show up in in cash flow next quarter. Yep. Yep. That's That'll show up in cash flow next quarter. Absolutely. Okay. And is there any expectation that anything's going to come out of Joliet? Or do we need to see business conditions improve before you see cash? Yeah, I mean, a, a small amount, uh, I would say, uh, out okay. of Juliet. Not, nothing material. Perfect. Thank you. Thanks, Rob. Your next question comes from Andrew Kuski with Credit Suisse. Please go ahead. Thank you. Good morning. Um, maybe if we could just focus a little bit on, on the DRU. Because obviously, uh, you validated the project in the market. You know, I'd, We've always thought that that had very compelling economics, but you've got the anchor. It's up and running. Could you maybe just give us some color on what happens with the second increment of the DRU? You know, should it proceed? Do the the anchors costs effectively tilt down, but you deliver more um, attractive economics on the second leg to yourself? So with that, with our anchored tenant, um, being that they were an anchor tenant, uh, if we do contract a second DRU, uh, there is substantial uh, Im improvement in the economics, right? But but a large majority of that improvement goes to that anchor tenant for being that anchor tenant. So it is better than the first economics, but not not by as much as you would think. 
But, but then, Andrew, I mean, I, I think subsequent to that, you don't have that same dynamic. So if you think about additional phases, uh, as Steve said, second customer, uh, it, you know, you don't see as much of a benefit because of uh, the fact that, as Steve said, they help backstop that first phase. Subsequent phases to that, you don't have that same dynamic. And so we see, you know, tremendously better economics uh, to the extent that it goes beyond that 100,000 barrels a day of inlet capacity. That, that's very helpful. And then if you could maybe just give us uh, some color around the tone of conversations with people now that you've really validated the concept, the project, your shipping barrels all the way to the south and just the appetite for, for people to, you know, engage and to, you know, explore the expansion opportunity. Yeah, I mean, um, I was with my commercial team down in Houston, um, and we were talking to a lot of the, um, the big U.S. refiners there that are running this. Um, they're very, very pleased um, with this product. The, you know, the neat bitumen, it allows them to, they, they do blend that neat bitumen, but they blend it with a, you know, a, um, like a WTI or something. They don't blend it or, or WTI or WTL, West Texas Light. They're not blending it with that condensate, you know, like Mont Bellevue natural gasoline. Uh, which causes kind of like a dumbbell crude. Dilbit's kind of a dumbbell crude, uh, which kind of which makes refinery runs not optimal. And so they can blend this neat bitumen and really improve the refinery runs. So I think there's gaining excitement on the, on the U.S. Gulf Coast with this product. So with that, we believe, you know, we're gaining some momentum too around contracting the DRU next year. Okay, that's helpful. If I may just sneak in one more. Uh, obviously, we've seen a couple you know, positive budget announcements out of the Canadian ENPs, but as we really head into the full thrust of budget season in December, you know, how do you think that translates through your business because you've seen volumes lift across your systems? Or just how do you think about the positivity into, into 22? Yeah, well, I mean, that quick response is more around the conventional systems, um, both in the U.S. and in Canada. Uh, you know, they're not a large portion of our business overall. Uh, so even if we did see maybe a 20% uptick in that, it's nothing substantial because that total business is less than 5% of our total EBITDA. Okay. You know, as Thank far you as very the much. Long run, as far as the long run, you know, uh, if we're able to do brownfield expansions in, in the uh, – you know, in the, in the oil sands, I think that's a great opportunity, you know, for potential tankage um, at Hardesty. Now that Line 3 is back and so on, is totally in service. Great. Thank you very much. Your next question comes from Robert Cotillier with CIBC. Please go ahead. Yeah, just uh, to follow up uh, on the DRU here, I, I wonder if you could uh, discuss the interplay of the Enbridge mainline contracting with um, uh, the producer or the customer behavior? In other words, uh, do you think you need a resolution as to what the, the mainline contracting might look like and what the allocations to specific refiners might be before they'd be willing to um, uh, commit to capacity at the DRU? You know, th thank you, Robert, for that question. That's an interesting question. Um, when you look at mainline contracting versus, let's just transport versus DRU, um, you know, DRU in the current environment is actually better than mainline all the way to the U.S. Gulf Coast. Uh, when you look at the increase in, in a neat bitumen or drubit sale along the Gulf Coast versus dilbit, 
and you look at the uptick of of condensate versus uh, dill bit here. So you know you got that 35 to 40 percent of condensate that you're taking out of the stream, and you're getting, I believe today's WTI plus three or four versus minus uh, minus 15 to 16 on the dill bits. So that economics, when you look at all the all, all when you put everything together uh, today, uh, the DRU actually is better than the pipeline, and it provides a different type of service and a different type of reliable offtake. Yeah, that, that's what that's what I thought. And then, um, so what you're saying um, previously in your comments to other questions is that the DRU uh, performance in terms of meeting spec is there already. So it's just a question, really, the, of the customer getting confident uh, with the process and spending more time with it. Um, to get the confidence they need to uh, to contract. That's correct, Robert. Thank you. Yeah, and then uh, just last one here quickly. Obviously, um, you've done a lot on the ESG front and um, have a good path forward on the emission uh, early days. But uh, there was a commentary about uh, you know putting a place in place a cap on emissions for the oil and gas industry. Do you, how do you look at that given? Um, you're already sort of the front of pack, lowest emissions intensity, but what, what do you think it means for uh, business development uh, in terms of uh, the impact that cap might have on your customers? You know, um, we've, we've been thinking about that for a while, and obviously, you know, after the announcement yesterday, you know, uh, we did get together and talk a little bit about it. Uh, but overall, I think the oil sands producers, I think they've been kind of front-footed here, right? And they've been thinking about this solution for the last couple of years uh, and looking at the different opportunities in which they can reduce their their carbon footprint. So I think I think that that solution is going to be solved uh, by our producers, uh, especially in the oil sands. Uh, so, and then, you know, whether or not CC, uh, CCS um, is... Um, is viable, which I think it will be. Um, and then also you get the tertiary recovery and the CO2 uh, and the tertiary recovery. And we're starting to see those type of opportunities start to pick up. So uh, we think uh, Canada is gonna be one of the one of the lowest carbon producers in the world. And one of the, one of the people that the world relies on to produce reliable low carbon uh, fuels. And we'll be there to support it. Okay, thank you. Ladies and gentlemen, as a reminder, should you have any questions, please press star 1. Your next question comes from Patrick Kenny with National Bank Financial. Please go ahead. Thank you. Yeah, good morning, guys. Um, just maybe back to Hardesty, Steve. You mentioned Line 3 being in service, and I know it's still early days, but operationally, um, just wanted to confirm if you're seeing overall tankage being sufficient for customers or you know do you see a, a need for an extra tank or two as volumes through hardesty continue to ramp up uh, this being outside of another tank to support the next phase of dru uh good morning patrick um so i think we we've, we've said this in the past that we didn't see, you know we contracted really around that tank that uh, line three really a couple of years ago so a lot of the tanks that are in service today are for production that was that is this line three production. So 
So um, I don't know that line three going in service is going to impact us in the short term. I think in the long term it'll it'll impact us, you know, as these brownfield SAG D uh, uh, opportunities are developed. Got it. Great. And then just on marketing, uh, Sean, you mentioned the fixed cost component. So just curious if you've fully right-sized uh, the cost structure there for the business or if there's more that can be done through 2022 just to help hold that $80 million base level. And then also maybe below the EBITDA line, you know, if there's more that can be done to, say, reduce the lease payments uh, for that business to help support uh, free cash flow. Yep. No, thanks for that, Pat. Uh, I think as you would have seen, I mean, on the lease side, uh, our marketing group has actually been actively reducing our leases. Uh, so you would have seen those lease payments already go down last year, and then they've come down again this year. You know, on the fifth cost, fixed cost side, um, you know, it really depends on, you know, what we're talking about there. But, you know, what that is, is our marketing business takes those commitments and then optimizes around those commitments. And so to actually earn their margin, you need some of those commitments to make it. So, I mean, like anything, especially in an environment that's, you know, somewhat more challenging for them right now, you know, they are looking at all commitments they have and make sure that they still make sense in this current environment. Uh, but, but nothing to point to right now. I think, you know, the position they have is one that they think that still makes sense. It uh, gives them the best opportunity uh, to not, not only earn margin in what is a more challenging environment right now, but if the marketing environment recovers to then get back to a period of where, you know, potentially you can make more outsized profits. Got it. And sorry if I missed it, Sean, but uh, being a month into Q4 here, um, any uh, near-term guidance on the, the contribution for Q4? Uh, we, we came out and in my prepared remarks, it was five to $10 million. Got it. Thank so, you. So lower than this quarter, um, you know, a couple factors that we talked about in the prepared remarks there. Uh, you know, we are in the winter season for Moose Jaw. Drilling hasn't really picked up like it has in other years to, to offset that a, as much. And another factor being just with the rise in crude here, we do have, you know, some financial positions that offset physical gains. So. Perfect. Appreciate it. Your next question comes from Matthew Weeks with IA Capital. Please go ahead. Hi, thanks. Um, all my questions have actually been answered at this point, so I'll just put myself back in the queue. Thanks. Thank you, Matthew. Your next question comes from Ben Pham with BMO. Please go ahead. Hey, come on, guys. I'm, I'm, just, I'm just wondering, I know you've, you've kept your, um, your base strategy, one or two tanks a year, DRU phase two, Use marketing profits to to buy back stock stock, or if you had excess profits, I'm I'm, I'm just curious. Are you evaluating or board evaluating any other sort of different cap cap allocation strategies, whether it's asset sales or debt restructuring, M&A? Like, is there any anything else that you're you're looking at to maybe bridge this this valuation discount on your shares? Let me start this, and then uh, I'm gonna let Sean kind of uh, wrap it up. But you know. This time each year, we do take a hard look at our strategy. You know, what is our strategy looking forward? Um, and we'll look at all of those things, you know, uh, as far as any kind of change in our strategy. Uh, I think we've been 
exceptionally good at executing the strategy that we laid out in 2018. You know, and we'll we'll look at you know how do we need to tweak that strategy uh, going forward, Sean. Yeah, I mean, I couldn't agree more. I mean, certainly we are not complacent. We're doing everything we can to try and maximize value. I mean, just some of the specific items you talked about there, and I, I think to the extent that we have an ability to deploy capital at five to seven times under long-term contracts with investment-grade counterparties, I think if you look across the energy infrastructure spectrum, those are some of the most attractive capital deployment opportunities in the space. So we'll obviously continue to do that and maximize that. You know, outside of that, um, you know, we do have the NCIB. That's something that, you know, we expect that we will be active in over time. Uh, you know, so that certainly is a tool in the toolkit. You know, asset sales, as you would know, we, we have already really largely rationalized our portfolio. Um, you know, we did that through, since Steve joined in 2017 and, you know, through the execution of our strategy. So there's not a lot on that side. And then M&A, as we've talked about, is something that we always evaluate. Now, there's always going to be a competition for capital as you think about M&A, and when you're deploying capital you know, in a fashion that I talked about earlier, that, that bar or the hurdle rate for that M&A is extremely high, but that's still something that we're always investigating. Um, you know, is there M&A opportunities out there that we think will be additive uh, to the strategy? So, so the short answer is yes. We are investigating you know, all of the above. Uh, as a management team and with the board, but that, that quite frankly isn't all that different than any year, as Steve talked about earlier. You know, on the debt restructuring side, there's really not a lot to be done there either. I mean, we, as you'd be well aware, Ben, you know, with our move to investment grade, we have completely cleaned up our old legacy sub-investment grade capital structure. We would have, you know, amongst the lowest coupon and amongst the longest weighted average center in our peer space. So, um, you know, ne never complacent, but still, Unfortunately, there's not a lot more we can squeeze out of that uh, out of that one there. But again, uh, always investigating, uh, certainly. Okay, that, that's great context. And um, I want I want to follow up to with when you think about even M and A, even new, new investments. Would you consider even heading out of the the crude business, whether it's gas processing? Or I know you you added talked on the DRU, for example. Any any thoughts of even heading heading outside a bit? You know, those are things that we'll definitely discuss with the board, you know, and, you know, the, those types of strategies are, you know, the board, the board is definitely going to need to weigh in on anything like that. Those are board decisions, but um, we're, we are, you know, we're taking a hard look at our strategy going forward. Yeah, I, I think one thing, Ben, is that, you know, cash flow quality, we understand very much why people invest in Gibson, and, and part of it is the quality of cash flow as you see, see through our core infrastructure business. You know, and so that will remain part of the strategy moving forward. You know, we've got financial governing principles that include, you know, the level of take or pay we have, you know, fixed fee for service, um, you know, investment grade counterparties, and we're going to stay true to those as we think about sort of evolution of the strategy as well, though. Okay, that's great. Thank you. There are no further questions. Please proceed. Well, let me take this opportunity to thank everyone for joining us on our 2021 third quarter conference call. Uh, again, just want to note that we have made certain uh, supplementary information available on our website, gibsonenergy.com. If you have any further questions, please reach out to us at investor.relations at gibsonenergy.com. Thank you, and thanks for your support for Gibson. 
Ladies and gentlemen, this concludes your conference call for today. We thank you for participating and ask that you please disconnect your lines. Have a great day. Prescription products require completion of an online medication consultation with an independent healthcare provider through the LifeMD platform and are only available if prescribed. Subscription required. Individual results may vary. Additional restrictions apply at LifeMD.com. Read all warnings before using GLP-1s. Side effects may include a risk of thyroid C-cell tumors. Do not use GLP-1s if you or your family have a history of thyroid cancer. If you've struggled for years to lose weight and have given up hope, did you know you can now access GLP-1 prescription medications through LifeMD? LifeMD is now offering eligible patients online access to GLP-1s, the breakthrough prescription medication that can help you lose body fat and weight. Listen to what people are saying. Probably the easiest thing I've ever done. The medication comes in the mail and it's very easy to use. I've been able to live my normal lifestyle and I've lost 20 pounds already and I've never felt better. It changed my life. And here's the best part. Your insurance may cover 100% of the cost of your medication. So go to TryLifeMD.com to have your eligibility checked right now. Get started today at TryLifeMD.com. That's T-R-Y-L-I-F-E-M-D.com. Save big on Brunch for Mom, all in the Kroger app. Get 16-ounce packs of flavorful Angus 90% Lean Ground Sirloin for $4.99 each with a digital coupon. Then buy two, get two free on 12 packs of delicious Coca-Cola, Pepsi, or 7-Up, all with your card. Shop these deals at your local Kroger, less than five miles away. Or tap the screen now to download the Kroger app to save big today. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Prices and product availability subject to change. Restrictions apply. See site for details. Thank you for listening to TSX Quarterly. If you enjoyed the cast, remember to leave a good rating. And remember, for any additional inquiries, please consult the company's investor relations section on their website. See you next time.